Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to pick up there in verse 8 in a Bible study that I've entitled, Influencing Your World. And facing our fears is a very important step in remaining open and usable in the master's hands. Remember, we learned the difference between real fear, the gift that God has given to us in the emotion of fear, but also how it can become very irrational and how fear can steal from us all that God wants to accomplish in our lives by faith. And facing our fears is that important step in presenting ourselves to God, allowing fears and anxieties to paralyze us into inaction and to isolate us is always a sinful mistake. God made us for community. He made us to interrelate with one another. God has placed you in the body of Christ so that you might be a blessing to someone else that also someone might be a blessing to you. But he's also placed you in this world to interface with this world. Remember Jesus when he was praying, and when he was praying in John 17, he said, hey, I don't pray that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them and that you protect them. And so it's God's will that his church remain in the world until he returns. We were made for one another. Jesus describes us as the salt and the light in the world today. You could say quite literally that we are the hands and feet and the mouths representing Jesus today. But it is too easy to get discouraged, to be overcome with irrational fears, to pick up false narratives and base our lives on something other than the truth of God's word. And it's too easy to be discouraged in the current situation that God has allowed in your life. It seems like the grass is always greener somewhere else. That it's always better somewhere other than where God has you right now. Someone else's life, someone else's situation, or even looking back and go, man, I wish we could just turn the clock back a year and a half. It was so much better then. And then you begin to worry. And you begin to fret and deal with anxiety and even start to make decisions based upon the fear of man and not the leading of the Holy Spirit. And to that I say, trust the Lord, that God has set you aside so that you might learn to trust him in every situation. Remember the sovereignty of God, that God has either allowed the situation in your life or he has sent the situation in your life or he's part of both. But don't allow situations to cloud you and blind you from the sovereignty of God, that he is in control. And God has not called us to isolation. He's not called us to be removed from this world. He's not called us to deal with our fears just so we can go on with life. But rather, he's called us to infiltration so that our lives will infiltrate a dark world and bring the hope of the gospel. And so when we deal with our fears, the question is, well, okay, now what? What are you going to do now? And I think that's a great question to ask. Now that you've come through a trial or now that you've gained greater strength or now you're in a new season of your life, now what? And I believe for us, God is wanting to remind us of our responsibility to influence this world through our faith in Jesus Christ. That we have influence. It's either good or bad, but we have influence. We have reputation as believers. 
It's either good or bad, but we have it. And it's especially needed in tough times because you know as well as I do, God loves to get people's attention through trials and through difficulties where they weren't thinking about God before, they weren't thinking about eternity before, but now all hell's breaking loose and they're asking questions like never before. But there are some questions that we can help them with, as we'll see in a moment. But for you personally, you need to narrow down your life, church. You really need to examine your own life and come to the same conclusion that Paul did in Philippians chapter three. So that he comes to that conclusion, he goes, look, this one thing I do. You need to know what that one thing is for you. Be laser focused. This is no time for us to be playing games, no time for us to co-op the gospel with some cause or some attitude. No, the Lord wants us to be single-minded, to be single-focused, which drops us into the letter here in 1 Peter chapter three. Peter's writing to a group of hassled, scattered Christians under great persecution. They're losing their lives. They're being filleted alive. They're being put into hot cauldrons of boiling oil. They are being used to light the gardens of Caesar. The, the greatest pressure that the early church is feeling here, the audience that Peter is writing to, is government oppression in a way that none of us have ever experienced. You see, Nero has lost his mind, the Roman emperor of the day. He's lost his mind, and, and through his bad behavior, part of Rome is burning. And in order to sidestep his own personal responsibility, both to his overseers and also to the people, what does he do? He blames the Christians. He, he takes it out on the believers. He literally chases them to death and makes life hard for them steals and takes all of their possessions. And it's to this group where times are tough, where the families are struggling and separated, where the situation is so serious even unto death that Peter writes. And up to chapter three, verse eight, he has led us through the, the importance of understanding the faithfulness of God, the power of God, the love of God, and then he turns a corner in chapter two and he starts to talk about the necessity of mutual submission. I know that's not a popular topic today, but it should be, because all society works well with mutual submission, including the church, including your marriage, including your relationship at your, with your employer or as an employer or as a boss. And from that, verse eight, he says, chapter three, finally, all of you, be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, and be courteous. Let me read it to you from the New Living Translation. Finally, all of you should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters, be tender-hearted, and keep a humble attitude. This is an expectation during difficult times. How much more is it needed during difficult times to maintain unity as believers? There is a distinction between those following Jesus and those that don't. We often refer to that, you could say in a very simple way, you have the church and you have the world. And there should be a very strong distinction and difference between the church and the world. And one of the differences that will speak to a watching world 
One of the distinctions that will speak loud volumes and loudly to a watching world is the unity of the church. But let me just say, and I've mentioned this before, in the 21 years I've been a pastor here in Colorado, five or six years pastoring in California, I have never seen the church so divided than now, so opinionated, so far off from the gospel, even though they're using spiritual language, backbiting, complaining, murmuring. And I don't mean just about the little things, but church over years have been known to be arguers and fighters over non-essential things. What Bible version do you use? What songs do you sing? Why do you have a building? Why do you, use, why do you dress this way? Why? All of that stuff. But this is much deeper. I mean, if we didn't deal with it on the easier things, do you think we're going to be able to deal with it on the harder things? And so here's the fruit of division where now it's this church against that church, and what about you guys? And you guys didn't take this position, and we take that position, and this is over here, and we've got to fight for this over here, and none of those are the gospel. And so as a church, we want to have a reputation where there's unity among us, where notice what happens when there's unity. This is things you can look for. Number one, there's going to be compassion, a community of believers that are filled with compassion. That's what he says. Be compassionate with one another, church. Compassion means to feel with or feel for the needs of others. So that, you know, when someone hurts, you hurt. When they struggle, you struggle. Compassion comes from a soft heart, like the New Living. Sympathy, empathy, that there's emotion in the church. It's not just dry doctrine. Doctrine moves a person to action. Not only that, but brotherly love notice. When there's unity, We're to love as brothers and sisters. We're to, as we've learned, love covers a multitude of sins. We're to extend the benefit of the doubt to one another. We're to handle our differences biblically and handle them properly. Not only that, but we're to have a tender heart. Notice he says in verse 8, be tenderhearted. When there's unity, there's a tenderheartedness about us. There's a sensitivity that is unknown in the world. Like the world shouldn't be more compassionate than the church. And the world shouldn't be filled with this phileo brotherly love more than the church. And the world shouldn't have a more tender heart than the church does. And then finally, to be courteous, but you can write next to that word humble. We're to be a humble people, not a prideful, arrogant people. At the first hint of oppression or decisions, many in the church cried out to fight and didn't take the place of humility. When racial tensions grip our our nation, many people look down on others instead of looking up. Listen, when you are humble and you take the lower position, when you take the lower position, you can't look down on anyone. You look up to everyone. Humility places you in a position where you value people that were created in the image of God. That's the church. But when the church is in disunity, fighting each other, going at each other, they become loveless, hard-hearted, prideful, and arrogant. And the, ch- and the world wants nothing to do with that. You wanna know why? They already have it. That is the world. A dog-eat-dog society. 
That you and I, we were called into a new relationship with God where our sins are forgiven. We're living eternally with God. The very nature of Jesus is inside of us. There must be, there needs to be, there has to be a difference. Especially in tough times. Especially when things are hard. And how do you know that you're living according to the gospel? Let me just give you a quick test. Whatever message you're carrying, whatever message you're posting on social media, whatever email you're forwarding, listen, the gospel works everywhere, okay? When you have the real gospel, it is true for every tribe, tongue, nation on the, world, in, on the planet today. Like, so if you only have the gospel that surrounds Western culture, you don't have the full gospel. Because the full gospel will save someone in the United States of America, but it'll also save someone in Egypt. It'll save someone in Nigeria. It will save someone in Australia. Because the gospel is for every tribe, tongue, and nation, not just our own little country. So that when you think of saving and you think of salvation, the gospel thinks of souls, souls. And you can get caught up in things that sound like the gospel, maybe start with the gospel, but actually transcend what you think is the gospel. You know, the gospel, it started with the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, and it's been applicable all the way through every tribe, tongue, and nation. You know, there have been a lot of tongues, tribes, and nations that have come and gone. Even the nation, even the empire that was overseeing the believers at this time of Peter, the Roman Empire, they imploded and the gospel continued because the gospel supersedes some of the things that we think it is, church. And I wonder if some of you just need to go back on social media and ask for forgiveness for spreading something that isn't the gospel, that hasn't changed lives, that you're caught up in something that has no eternal value. And so the world looks at you and go, y'all, just another one, just another one, just another one. I mean, if people are going to be offended, let them be offended at the cross of Jesus Christ. The gospel is offensive. You don't need to be offensive. All you need to do is tell someone about their sin and the hope of Jesus and the forgiveness that's available by faith in him. Unity, church, unity. Unity is going to require us to humble ourselves and to ask God for his forgiveness. The only true way outside of sinful behavior is to repent. Repentance is the beginning of life and the newness of life. Notice verse 9 now. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. So let me just say, as a believer, people will do evil to you. Just understand that. You will experience evil. And I mean, in its most wicked core, you will experience evil. You will experience, let's, let's replace evil for a minute and other words. You will experience injustice. You will experience unfairness. You will experience things that you say, you know, this is just wrong. This is just wrong. And when you do, you don't return wrong for wrong. You don't return injustice for injustice. You don't return evil for evil. Or notice that next word, reviling. You're going to be called names. You're going to be attacked for who you are. You're going to have these ad hominem personal attacks to try to get you off your game. And when you are reviled, you don't return it with other name calling. It says, again, the New Living Translation, don't repay evil for evil. 
Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That's what God has called you to do. And he will grant you his blessing. That's what it says in verse nine. On the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this. You were called to endure evil and you were called to extend blessing. That's the church. That's why the church is different than the world. The world is, man, I'm gonna get what I need. I'm gonna get revenge. I'm gonna get back at you. I'm gonna make sure you heard as much as I heard. Not so much, not so among the believers. We look to Jesus who suffered greatly on our behalf, who took our pain and suffering upon himself. And we don't return evil for evil. That's not the church. That's not our role in society. You don't influence the world when you live like the world. You might wanna jot that down, church. You don't influence the world when you live like the world. They aren't interested. Notice verse 10. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. Let him turn away, verse 11, from evil and do good. I mean, there's a conscious, when you're surrounded with evil, you're in a culture of evil, you've got to consciously choose to turn away from it and still do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Even in the midst of your trial, get that, even in the midst of your pain right now, what you're experiencing, the eyes of the Lord are upon you. And his ears are open to your prayers. And the face, though, notice, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That makes sense. We agree with that, 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 that God, he resists evil. He doesn't want anything to do with it. But, but understand this, if you return evil for evil, now you are in that category and God's face is against you. You go, but Ed, I'm saved. I'm so, yeah, but you are grieving the Holy Spirit and not enjoying, you're living in disobedience. And you're gonna suffer the consequences of disobedience. For what? An opinion? For some passionate thought? Look, anytime we take the route of the gospel, God will bless that. And it will provoke a watching world. Because whether you realize it or not, the world is watching. You and me and us. And the world will watch long after this trial passes in any other trial, any other difficulty. I don't foresee, just as a pastor, fellow believer, I don't foresee things getting much easier. I see them becoming much more challenging. I see more challenges up ahead for us as a believer, for us as a church, for us in our homes and our families. But challenges are met by the power of God. Don't you believe in the power of God, church? Don't you believe that he is greater, he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you can think or ask? That God is working all things together for the good, for those that love him, those that are called according to his purpose? That this present trial doesn't compare to the eternal glory that God will reveal in us? I mean, God is faithful, church. We limit him when we forget how powerful he is. I mean, we don't limit him in the sense he's always gonna be eternal God, but we limit our ability to enjoy and to access the power of God in our lives when we live like there is no God, when we live like he isn't sovereign, when we live like we don't trust him, when we're all fearful and we're all hiding, and then we're like, well, let's fight, let's fight, let's get everything back that's been taken away. How about this? How about you just humble yourself and let God use you in your current situation? He knows what he's doing and what he's allowed into your life. And it's the influence of the church that's lost when we get our eyes off the Lord. 
even for good things. You know, I taught my kids this. I actually learned this on an episode of Adventures in Odyssey once with our kids. And they did a great episode on it. And one of the things I taught them is that you can do the right thing the wrong way. Wow. You can do the wrong thing in the wrong way, but you can also do the right thing. You have the right motives, but you, do it, you apply it wrong. You have the right goal, but you do it wrong, and you blow the witness of the church. Uh, again, the, the world's not going to like the church, not going to hug the church, not going to embrace the church. We know that. But we don't have to behave in such a way where we give them reason to no longer care about the influence of God on the earth today. I mean, of course, of course, the church and the message of the gospel is an affront to our culture, of course. It was an affront to you and to me, but only so that it might get our attention and we can see our great need for salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. We can make it worse. You were called to this. Notice verse 13 now. He says, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? That's a great question. But it's kind of like, don't misunderstand it. Like, just because you've chosen to follow what is good, like, nobody's going to want to harm you anymore. That's not what he's saying. It's like Paul, when he wrote to the Romans, he says, if God be for us, who can be against us? Well, a lot of people can be against us. So that's not the point he's making. The point he's making is that when God is on your side, it's going to be okay. Like, if you choose to follow good, but Ed, it's so hard. And Ed, they're stealing our freedoms. And Ed, they're doing this. And Ed, they're making me do that. And Ed, Pastor, Pastor. Like, okay, so when you choose to do what is good, how is that going to harm you? You've aligned yourself with God. Yeah, but Ed, they're still, yeah, they're still doing. And you can make it harder or you can make it easier by your choices. But it's actually not about us. When we were saved, we surrendered our, all our rights and privileges to God willingly and openly. So it's actually not about us. Notice, he says in verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake. So you've chosen to do good. Most people won't want to harm you. You know, most people leave good people alone, but there will be people that are offended. They'll they'll hurt you. They'll suffer for righteousness sake. Mark those words. If you suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. That is the blessed position of the believer when you and I suffer for righteousness' sake. Even if you do, you are blessed. And don't be afraid. I love how he ties fear in. That's why it really goes well with our study last time. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Just continue to be the church. They'll be threatening you, be the church. They'll want to make you afraid, be the church. They want to get you off your game and off your bounce. No, you just continue to live your life as unto the Lord. Verse 15 now. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. Now this passage is often a passage that's referred to as the beginning of a ministry known as apologetics. Why? Because the word here, defense, is the Greek word apologia. It's translated into the English uh, as apologetics. It means to give a defense for the faith. It speaks of those that love to answer Bible questions, love to answer doctrinal false teachers, and apologetics is a significant ministry in the body of Christ today. However, that is not the context of this verse. 
The context of this verse is not to establish an apologetics ministry. The context of this verse is written to people that are under great, severe pressure and trial and tribulation and difficulty. They're having problems with each other, but they're also having problems that were instituted from a government entity. And because of the government on which they live, they're suffering and they're going through it. And so Paul says, hey, in all of this, choose to do good. Don't return evil for evil. Submit yourself. Stay in unity. Be the church. Fight for one another. Care for one another. Love one another. Be humble. Oh, and by the way, by the way, set God apart in your life for people that see your life and ask you a question. It really comes out in the New Living. Listen to what it says. It says, instead, this is verse 15, instead you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. In the context of trials, where everyone is going through this, not just you, believer and unbeliever alike have suffered this year. Believer and unbeliever alike have, re, have experienced restrictions and difficulties. They've listened to all everyone's opinions and narratives. They've got this doctor saying this and that doctor saying that and this over here and they live over here and they have to deal with this. Everyone, believer and unbeliever, have had to endure the things that we've had to endure. Everyone, all of us, collectively. However, believers are in a unique place unlike anyone else because they trust God in difficult times. And we may not have all the answers and we may not know who to believe, but we do know this. If we pray and ask for wisdom, God says he'll give it to us. He will lead us and guide us. So let me ask you a question. And this will be very challenging for many of you, and I know, but it's okay, it needs to be. And that includes you guys online and on the radio right now. Like this is God's appointment. Let me ask you a question. In this last year or so, year and a half, how many people have seen your life and asked you, why you're so different. How many have asked you, man, everybody's freaking out about this, but you're not. How many have looked you in the eye and go, man, what's the deal with you? I don't understand it. Aren't you afraid? Aren't you concerned? Aren't you, I know that the reputation of the Christian church here is up in arms and we're gonna, we're gonna all, why don't you get involved in that? What's your church doing about it? Who's asked you that lately? Or let me ask you this, as you process and you go, I don't know, not too many. Okay, so let me ask you this. Why haven't they asked you? Why are you living your life in such a way that provokes people to see something different in you? To see a true, I, I was talking as I was greeting earlier, I, I was just thinking of this, like in all the years I've been alive, this is the only time in my entire life I've experienced something like this. And I don't want to waste it. I don't want to experience it again, but I don't want to waste it. I don't want to waste this monumental global trial. Oh, listen, I, I know the Bible. I teach the Bible all the way through. We went through Daniel Revelation. I know we're in the end times. I know the things we're seeing are prepping us and preparing the world, not us as believers necessarily, but the world to, to fall in line with exactly what the Bible describes as coming in the last days, one world government, antichrist, one world currency. I get it. I know it. I understand but there are far more things, there are things that are far more important than just watching prophecy unfold. And it's this, the souls of men and women and boys and girls, that God's gonna get people's attention through all of this. 
And you know, we teach through the Bible, so we don't shy away from all that. You can listen to our studies. I just did it in Daniel. Uh, I just did a, a whole series on understanding the times on our midweek Bible study. And we stopped and just really nailed down in a relevant way in our current culture what's going on in the world today. But you, you think you're gonna stop that? Do you think you're gonna stop the will of God? It is the will of God for Jesus to return for his church. That is God's will. And it is equally God's will for us to be the church and bring people to a saving faith. So who's asked you lately? Who's asked you lately? I mean, maybe what you need to do today is you need to go back on your social media platform and you need to ask for forgiveness for all the stuff you've been posting and start getting back to the gospel, getting back to what's important. Maybe in all those emails you've been forwarding and sending around, maybe it's time you send one more email out. You know how to do it. Send one more out and say, please forgive me. I've been off track. And I've been leading you down a path that really hasn't led you to what's important. And let me tell you what's important. What's important to me is your soul. And I love you as a Christian. Man, I care about you. Only repentance is going to get you out of this. Or we're going to watch... We're going to watch an open opportunity just pass us by as a church, individually and corporately. He says that we need to live our lives in such a way as worshiping Christ as Lord of your life. So what does that look like? What is worshiping Christ as Lord? What does that look like practically? Well, a friend now, a pastor friend of mine, he did a survey with his staff and a few people in his church asking that question. And they came up with, you know, 10 or 15 answers and so I, I'm going to read that to you. I, took, I just took it from him, and then I texted him yesterday, thanks for all the work you did. I'm going to share it with our church this week. And he said, fine. So I want to give you some things. You might be asking, what, is, what, is, what makes the church different than the world? What is it that people see and experience? Let me go through a few things. Number one, we inconvenience ourselves for the sake of others. We sacrifice without hoping to gain anything personally. We offer tangible help to those who are in need whether it be money, shelter, clothing, transportation, and we expect nothing in return. We offer everyday kindness by just being plain nice. We go the extra mile with someone that we know will not make it to where they need to be without someone to help them. We pray for those who treat us like enemies and we seek to bless them. We make other, we make other people's problems our problems by getting involved and invested in their lives. We humble ourselves in front of others and choose to build them up. We have integrity standing for what is right, whether it's popular or not, without regard for politics, popular culture, or social shaming. We pay our bills and don't look for ways out of it, even when it's difficult. We don't kick people when they're down. We don't label people so that we don't need to love them anymore. We aren't prejudiced against anyone that's different than us. We don't participate in gossip, tearing down someone behind their back. We don't retaliate when we're wronged. We don't carry grudges. We don't blame the world and everyone else for our own faults. And we don't expect others to carry the burdens that God has intended for us to carry. And let me just say, when the watching world sees these types of things in us, they naturally are drawn to ask, what's the deal with you? What's the deal with your life? I've never seen anything like it. I've met a lot of Christians, but you're different. And they ask you, why? 
you can see how easy it is to get caught up in things. I mean, people will engage you still. They'll engage you on politics. They'll engage you in your opinions. They'll engage you of whatever you've been reading recently or whatever video you want. They'll be able to engage, but they're not asking the real important question. You can talk about a lot of things and never get to the root of what the issue is in someone's life, and that's their sin. So you can be involved in a lot of things and even call it Christian work and Christian, you can call it Christian all you want, but if it's not leading people to find out what it is about your life, then perhaps we have to ask ourselves, am I living any different than the world? Because if I am, then I'm in a state of disobedience. And my conscience can't possibly be clean and clear. Notice he says in verse 16, having a good conscience. You can't buy a good conscience. You can't make a good conscience. You can't borrow a good conscience. You can just have one. You can just have one. How? By following through on all just a few of the things that Peter just wrote. By living a life that's in the light and not in darkness. You can live with a good conscience. You can have a good conscience. You're not sneaking around. You're not lying. You don't have anything in your private life that if revealed would embarrass you or the Lord when accusations come against you, they can't possibly be true. You won't freak out and worry about them because they're not true. And you can continue to live your life in honor with God. I mean, take it from someone who before he was saved, man, my conscience was always troubled because I was always doing something wrong. I was always hurting, I, could, I, I hurt so many people and sinned so much I couldn't even remember it all and it troubled me. I wasn't able to get, I wasn't able to live with a peace of mind because my conscience was always violated by my behavior. But as a follower of Jesus Christ, I can stand before you today and tell you eye to eye, my conscience is clear. There is nothing hidden in my life. There's nothing that wouldn't, can't be revealed that, that isn't, is going to just shock anyone. Uh, there isn't anything that I'm trying to pull over on anyone. And it's not because I'm a perfect, you know, don't misunderstand that word, that phrase. That clean conscience doesn't mean you're a perfect person. Doesn't mean that you're going to be sinless. And I certainly can't stand before you that way. But I can say this, if on my pillow was stitched clean conscience, I can st- put my head down on that pillow every night and know that my life is right with God, and there's nothing that doesn't need to be dealt with that hasn't been dealt with in my life. That's how you live in a world that's just upside down chaotic. You live in the light as he is in the light, and then we have fellowship with one another, because notice, why is a good conscience so needed? Look, look at verse 16, and we'll head out, almost head out. That when they defame you as evildoers, so here you are suffering, Here you are in great trial. Here you are choosing to do good. Here you are living with a clean conscience. So that all of that, they turn against you and say, you're the evildoer, church. The church is wicked and evil and doesn't do anything good for society. Sound familiar? Not needed, not essential. That's the reputation. And so here we are. They defame you as evildoers. Why? Because in the last days, the Bible says that what is good will be called evil and evil will be called good. So you live with a clean conscience so that when they defame you as the evildoers, those who revile your good, you got to have good conduct, your good conduct in Christ, they might be ashamed. And and this is the kicker, verse 17. Some of you aren't going to like this at all. But listen, 
It is better. You ready? It is better if it's the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So you're going to suffer, church, and it is better. It is better. It is better to suffer for doing good in Christ than for doing evil. You don't want to suffer for doing evil. You know, some people, they do evil and they go, oh, I can't believe it. Look what you've done to me. Oh, I can't believe it. I'm suffering for Christ. Actually, no, you're not suffering for Christ at all. You just made a really stupid, simple decision that you're paying for. It's called consequences. You don't want to sow to the flesh because you're going to reap corruption. We want to learn to live life sowing in the spirit so that we can reap everlasting life. But don't misunderstand. Just because you've chosen to do good doesn't mean you're not going to suffer. But it's better when you suffer to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So when you finally come to terms with the reality of where you are in life, as the trial has revealed your heart to yourself, right? We often blame the trial for the things that get revealed in our lives. You know, I would have never been this mad. I would have never been this angry if I didn't face this trial. Actually, that's not true. That's all been in your heart, and the trial just revealed it. Now you see it for what it is, and you can deal a death blow to it by repenting and humbling yourself before God. You can't blame the trial. You can't blame the government. You can't blame them. You can't blame your parents. You can't. It's you and the Lord, and it's your personal walk. It's you. If God be for us, then who can be against us? The church cannot be stopped. Ever. Never. And so you see, when you face your fears, you automatically are reminded that you have a responsibility to influence your world. It's your choice. You go the route that God would have you to be, but I will continue as a pastor, as a friend, point you to that laser focus, keep your eyes on the Lord, love your neighbors, yourself, as you love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and he will use you in the transformation of lives, families, neighborhoods, cities, countries, even the world, a worldwide revival. If, if a worldwide pandemic can take place, don't you think a worldwide revival can take place? The gospel can take off? People can deal with the real infection that's in people's lives and the real issues that need attention from him. Amen? So Father, thank you for the word today and your encouragement in our lives. And it is a great day as we think of and appreciate our moms. It's also a challenging day as we think of our brother Jim and, and his family and, and just everything that we carry around. And then having to come you know, face to face with the weakness of our own flesh how we've handled things wrongly and poorly, how we might have gotten caught up in something that took us away from you, where, where the gospel, it's not just the forgiveness of sin, but it's the entirety of your character and nature. That when we walk forward with the gospel, it, it is reflecting you, Jesus. The good news, the good news that there's a hope beyond this world. And so God, we surrender to you today. As we leave here, we receive our marching orders and we ask for your power and strength to carry on in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. 
For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.